Welcome to episode 311 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right. We're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast with code ifpodcast. And we'll put all this information in the show notes.
One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 311 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hi, Melanie. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Good. I have been dealing with a potential dog issue over the last four or five days, which I'm so happy to report with tremendous gratitude that my dog's biopsy came back benign. So big exhale. And thankfully, the vet did not make me wait all day to get the results. I knew they had them yesterday, but 
The other vet was not willing to discuss them with me, noting it was a complicated, quote unquote, report. That's scary. Exactly. I was like, you know, there's a lot of ways you could have described the report and saying complicated doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make me feel reassured. So she called me first thing this morning. So I started my day, literally was outside walking my dogs and got her phone call. And so it was reassuring to have that information. It doesn't mean that he's not going to develop a problem later, but at least for right now, it does not appear to be cancerous. So that's very reassuring because he's 10 years young. You know, he's he's still young enough as a dog that it is not enough time to have to contemplate end of life decisions and things that anyone that has, you know, a relationship with an animal that they love, you know, all the way from people that love reptiles all the way to furry things, you know, my dog is a is a big contributor to my happiness level in my life. So knowing that there was a potential for a problem weighed very heavily over on me for the last four or five days. So grateful that uh, today I can look opt- optimistically towards the future. Yeah, I know. I'm so sorry you went through that. Is he um, feeling okay? I know he was sick. Yeah, so he's he's feeling fine. I think after the 24 hours after he had metabolized all the anesthesia, he was back to his kind of spunky grumpy self. Like he's not grumpy with me, but he's pretty much grumpy with anyone that bothers him. And so, you know, his, his little personality idiosyncrasies we've all acclimated to, but you know, he has a lot of anxiety, which is normal when older dogs go to the vet, even with trazodone before going to the vet for what we thought initially was an ultrasound that turned into a biopsy, the trazodone didn't take the edge off much and they gave him a pretty good dose of trazodone. And so when the vet and I were speaking this morning, she said, is it any wonder that his adrenal glands are, appear to be stressed? I think, you know, it's, it's evident that he does, you know, he doesn't enjoy coming to the vet, even though the vet is wonderful. And this is common, common with older dogs. I think some of it is they get a decline in, in cognitive functioning. So they may not be able to kind of buffer the stress of being in a place where they think much like little kids, they think they're going to get hurt or they're going to be separated from their owner. So yeah, there was a lot of praying and a lot of crying, a lot of, you know, just being hopeful as my husband, who's the most optimistic human being in the world kept saying was, we don't have anything that we need to be stressed about yet. I was like, speak for yourself. (laughs) So yeah, he, he, you know, had part of his belly shaved and, you know, trying to keep him away from licking, which I'm sure as the fur grows back, it's probably a little bit itchy, but We've got a solid plan and he's going to, you know, what can happen with adult humans as they get older and also happens in animals is they can get the sundowning. So I noticed that he gets anxious at night, which is new. And the vet and I were talking about it. And so we're, we're going to use a, a drug called gabapentin as needed. So not something he has to take every day, but to help him. Cause I'm noticing that that's kind of a new, a new symptom and something I used to see in a lot of my patients. So certainly not not something I'm not familiar with, but yeah, it's hard. It's hard to watch our pets get older. It really is. Wow. Yeah. No, I'm so sorry that, oh man, I don't personally have any pets, but my parents do. And I did growing up, of course. So I almost don't want a pet for the reason of not wanting to lose the pet in the end. It's the hardest thing. I mean, that's what I was boohooing to the vet about on Thursday was this is the hardest part of being a pet owner. Unlike humans where, you know, euthanasia is pretty much frowned upon, you know, you do have, excuse me, the opportunity to ensure that your pet doesn't suffer. And so, you know, for me, I was like, I don't want him to have to have his spleen removed. I mean, come on, you know, he's almost 11 years old and he'd have to be in the the doggy ICU for a couple of days. And 
I was like, that's, that's not a direction I want to go in. Cause that wouldn't be fair to him. And, and ultimately had it been, had it been malignant, his, you know, potentiality for living, you know, another six months was not particularly high. So I'm just grateful that, you know, whatever amount of time we still have with him, we're going to enjoy and savor and just be grateful that uh, we didn't have to make a tough decision. And what type of dog? This is my Labradoodle. So people on social media know that I refer to him affectionately as my lovey. (laughs) So he's the smartest, most intuitive pet I've ever owned. And we have another doodle and Baxter's like comedic relief. He's just a much less serious dog. Cooper's a very serious dog. He's kind of like an old soul. Jokingly, we've always said he doesn't think he's a dog, which is part of his problem, which is why he doesn't like to play with other dogs. He tolerates Baxter. But yeah, he's my lovey. He's my buddy. Mm-hmm. Well, sending lots of love and healing and hopefully, hopefully it gets better. It just made, that's the one thing about pets. They really make you value time because time with them is fleeting. And so you just have to savor, you know, savor the good times and, you know, pray you get as much quality of life for them for as long as possible. The stress piece surrounding it reminds me, I just finished Thank you so much for this introduction, by the way. Gabor Mate's book. I have that interview now next week. Oh, he's amazing. I just remember he did talk about pets in like one small part of the book. How was that interview that you had with him? Incredible. I, I think that you have to do the work to be able to get and facilitate a great conversation with someone like that because I read the book and it, and normally I read pretty fast and I retain quite a bit, but I had to read it and kind of put it aside because it made me think a lot about my parents and the things they grew up in that impacted the way they parented me and the way they've interacted in the world. And one of the things I said to him was, your book allows me to view them even more compassionately than I already had been. And it also makes me understand that most of us really don't understand what trauma represents. And so for me, it was very transformational. For anyone that's listened to that podcast interview, it's the most personal one I've ever done. And he was doing a little bit of therapeutic intervention and interaction with me. So I think that the way that we grow as human beings is to challenge ourselves. And that was a challenging interview for me because the only way to do the interview properly was to be transparent about my own experiences, my own journey, my own work that I'm constantly doing. I jokingly tell my husband, I think I'll be doing therapy till the day I die because I I think there's always something more we can improve upon or a better way to understand other people or our own behavior. And, you know, I think his work has really been instrumental. And, And what I appreciate about him in particular is he's so gracious. Obviously he's got this New York Times bestselling book and he's still doing press. He doesn't have to, but he's still doing a lot of press, which tells me that he just wants to help people. And I think that's so just incredible. And, you know, just it's a sign of the kind of person that he is and the level of impact that his work is making. I'm sure you're really excited to interview him next week. I'm so excited. And I was thinking about this. I think we're both going to benefit from the conversation that you've already had and the conversation I'm going to have so much. And it's kind of, I think, opposite sides of the spectrum because the thing I really want to ask him about, he has a whole section on people who perceive having really happy memories, like not recalling any childhood trauma, which is me for sure. Like I, because he has a whole section on this, like people who have like, you know, the happy childhood. And he basically says that there was still trauma. So I'm really excited to 
talk to him about that, especially because I feel like I passed the question because he said he had a question that he asks everybody who says that. And then that kind of weeds through. But the question is, I don't know if you remember this, it's when you were young and you felt like scared or afraid or angry or, you know, whatever emotion, did you have a parent that you could talk to or who did you talk to about it? And he says, most people who have things that manifest as trauma today, which is like chronic health issues or mental health issues, don't pass that test. I'm really excited to have that whole conversation because I feel like I did talk to my mom (laughs) about stuff, but he even says that like high achiever, you know, mentality is like trauma driven. And so like literally everything is trauma according to him. So I'm excited to uh, have this conversation. Well, and it's interesting because his concept of trauma is that it's a wound. It, It offers up this kind of more simplified, simplistic way of, of looking at trauma. I was actually talking about this with a group that I teach this morning talking about adverse childhood events and how that leads to autoimmunity and weight loss resistance and all this interesting research that's come out. And I encouraged some of these women. I was like, if you've grown up with abuse, neglect, et cetera, like do the work in in terms of helping yourself heal so that you don't potentiate that. Like I always say that my children, I, I didn't get the parents that I needed, right? Or I wanted, I should say. I got the parents that I needed to help break multi-generational trauma that had gone on. So in many ways, I'm so grateful that I didn't have the types of parents that I wanted because it made it made me create for my own children a very healthy relationship because I've done so much work and, and my husband's been so supportive of the whole healing journey. But I, I'm sure that people come to him with differing backgrounds and perspectives, and I'm sure it will yield a really enlightening and helpful discussion for, you know, the Melanie Avalon biohacking podcast listeners, because there's always something more to learn, right? It's not like we learn it all. And then we don't continue to evolve and shift and change our perspectives as we get older. I think there's always a nugget to learn from. So I look forward to listening to it. You know, I am so excited. Just two quick thoughts. One is I think similar to you, my mom had a lot of trauma and then I know she always tried to make it her goal to like not have the things happen that, you know, that she had growing up with us. So that sounds similar to, you know, your approach with your kids. There's so much. So I literally just finished it. So now I have to go through all the notes and like clean it up and synthesize my thoughts. But there's so many things I want to ask him. It's a long book. I mean, it's a book that took me a couple of weeks to get through because I could only absorb so much at a time because it, it really, it challenged me. It challenged me just on a on a personal and a professional level because I I mean I think most of our listeners know I trained in Baltimore and the trauma my patients experienced that we didn't realize how substantial and significant that was on their development and explains a lot of behavior. Like I have a 15-year-old, very bright 15-year-old, and he was talking about choices that people make and I just looked at him and I said, I I hate to say this to you because I I don't want to say this to you, but I'm going to, you realize you've grown up incredibly privileged and that you have two parents that are happily married that have been very focused on making sure that you are nurtured and, you know, you're, you have experiences and, you know, there's not, there's no abuse in this home and there's no drug addiction and just like very simple things. And he had never considered that, you know, he, I, I think kids 
in many ways, when they grow up in healthy environments, they just take for granted that that's everyone's norm. And so I just like pointing out to him, I was like, this is not a criticism, but your perspective has been created based on your own experience, which is fine. But with the understanding that, you know, kids you go to school with and kids that you'll go to college with and people you'll meet throughout your lifetime have had real struggles to get where they are and just how incredibly fortunate you are. And I hope that you understand that. And maybe you don't at 15, but I hope you do, you know, when you're a young adult, because it's very different. He always says, you know, it's so different than the way you grew up. I know. And I said, I I only share that with you so that you understand that your reality is not everyone's reality. And then he, you know, kind of processed that and came back to me later and was like, I want to learn more about this. And I said, okay, you know, it's probably time to be doing more volunteer work and and more than what we've been doing. I think the pandemic has kind of put a dent in and being able to be as free to to volunteer like we had been pre-pandemic. But that's a whole separate tangential conversation. I like that perspective about, you know, other people's traumas. I think for me, what it's really going to help as well is understanding why certain people act the way they act, you know, having a more informed perspective of people's reactionary actions and triggers and things like that being trauma related. I also like though, to that point, I like that he talks about how people also like compare their traumas and how that basically you can still have trauma, even if it's like not as quote bad as other people's trauma. So there's just so much. I'm very, very excited about it. He just interviewed Prince Harry. I saw that. I was very conflicted. I didn't watch. I haven't watched it yet. Yeah. There was a side of me that was curious. And then, I don't know. I I have a lot of objective, reasonable friends that have read his book. And I was kind of like, well, I feel conflicted about all of that. And I don't, as much as I would love to see Gabber interview him, I just opted not to. Hi friends, I'm about to tell you how to get an exclusive discount on one of my favorite products for truly upgrading your health on a cellular level. So the new year is upon us and it's often a time where people are really trying to instill new habits and really upgrade their health. There's something I have been using for years, not just at the new year, Literally every single day of my life, I am not making that up. Even when I travel, I have a way to address it then, which I will tell you about. And it's something that is so easy and feels amazing. That is red light and near infrared therapy. Okay, so friends, you could go somewhere and pay a lot of money to do red light near infrared therapy sessions, or you could just bring it to your home and use it every single day. That's what I do. I've been using Juve red and near infrared light therapy devices for so long. There are so many clinically proven benefits of red light therapy. That includes improving your skin. Yes, you really will notice it. Faster muscle recovery, reduced pain and inflammation, enhanced sleep, and so much more. I use it in the morning and evening as ambient light because it actually mimics the setting and rising sun. And then I sort of run it throughout the day as well to help combat all of the blue light that we're exposed to, which can have a negative effect on our health. Whenever I have muscle pain, I shine Juve on the muscle. For me, it has made the pain go away instantly. And then for chronic pain, when I do continued sessions, it's made it dissipate. One of my good friends who is a doctor uses these devices on his, shall we say, manhood for benefits there. Yes, it can help in that department as well. I honestly could not imagine my life without Juve. 
You will just feel so good using these devices. People also post all the time in our Facebook group of their pets gravitating towards the Juve because intuitively they just know that it's good for them. The reason Juve can address so many things related to health is because it actually affects our cells on the mitochondrial level. Basically, it makes those cells perform better. And when those cells are performing better, everything just works better. That's why, yes, Juve can help with your energy as well. I've been recommending Juve specifically for years because the quality of their devices are the best. Their modular design allows for a variety of setup options to give you flexibility. The treatments are so easy. You can do them in as little as 10 minutes, or you can be using it all throughout the day like I do. All you have to do is relax and let your body take in the light. They also have their Juve Go, which you can travel with. Yes, that is how I really do use this every single day. That Go is also great for targeting specific areas of your body, like hurting joints or sore muscles. Honestly, friends, health doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be complicated. If you're looking to enhance your health and wellness this new year, start with what matters, which is your cells. And Juve has an amazing offer just for our audience. You can go to juve.com slash ifpodcast and use the coupon code ifpodcast to get a discount on your qualifying order. Again, that's j-o-o-v-v.com forward slash ifpodcast to get an exclusive discount on your order. Pick up a Juve today. Some exclusions apply. I really hope you guys can experience Juve. It really is one of my favorite things. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Okay, shall we jump into everything for today? Sure. This is a question from Nikki. Subject is intermittent fasting and cancer prevention. Hi, Melanie and Cynthia. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about recommendations for intermittent fasting with respect to cancer prevention. I have a family history of breast cancer, and as I am now in my 40s, I'm more serious about making sure I've done everything I can to lower my risk. Melanie, I did listen to your interview with Dr. Jason Fung on the subject and read his book, but I don't remember him giving any actual time or protocol recommendations. These days, I don't fast as intensely as I used to. It ranges anywhere from 13 to 16 hours as I find it difficult to get all my protein in with a shorter feeding window. But I would be interested to know if more fasting would be recommended from this perspective. If, for example, your general risk of cancer could be significantly lowered if you fasted 24 hours at least once a week or even once a month, I'd be motivated to add that in. I do know that Dr. Sachin Panda recommended fasting for at least 13 hours to lower your risk of breast cancer, So that's why this is currently my minimum number, but I'd love to know your thoughts as to whether more is better and to what extent. Thanks so much for all you do. Best, Nikki. All right, Nikki. So thank you so much for your question. And I know Cynthia and I both have a lot of information on this. So I did a deep, deep dive into fasting and cancer, and I'll just spiel out what I found. I do remember reading obviously I remember, but I read Dr. Jason Fung's The Cancer Code and did have him on the show. And I was surprised reading his book. He did not talk about fasting very much in that book at all. Did you read that book? I did. Yeah. So I remember thinking that that was interesting. But in any case, so I found a really nice review from 2021. So it's published in the journal CA, which is a cancer journal for clinicians. And the title is Intermittent Fasting in the Prevention and Treatment of Cancer. And so I'm just going to go through some of the findings. I know Nikki's question is specifically about cancer prevention, but I just wanted to provide sort of an overview of what the literature does show about fasting and cancer to date, or at least until that review. So basically, well, just cancer stats. So cancer is the second leading cause of mortality and morbidity in the U.S. So it accounted for 
an estimated 608,570 deaths in 2021 alone. And it's estimated, at least at that time, that 42% of cancers are largely informed by modifiable lifestyle risk factors. So basically, your lifestyle is perpetuating, encouraging, and you know potentially could be treatment for the cancer. And so overweight and obesity specifically relates to at least 13 different types of cancers. And the reason that's important, obviously, is that fasting often results in treatment for obesity and being overweight. So there could be something going on there. Interestingly, there's something called the obesity paradox in cancer research, which is that in some forms of cancer, it seems like obesity is protective against cancer. But the uh, study authors were hypothesizing that a lot of that might be due to methodology issues or just like looking at the data sort of incorrectly. There are like a few cases where there's specific reasons that obesity might be protective. Like in one type of cancer, it specifically creates a type of protective immune cell in the fat, but that seemed to be far and few between. And it's more likely methodology stuff. On the flip side, a lot of factors of being overweight and obese are related to cancer pathways. So that's things like inflammation, high insulin, which when you have high insulin, that can protect cancer, like a dampening of things that you would find in calorie restriction, which calorie restriction is actually, and I just, I think this is pretty interesting. It is found to be the most robust intervention to date for cancer prevention in rats, monkeys, and humans. And so that's for a lot of reasons. And a lot of these overlap with fasting. So that is things like decreased production of growth factors, inflammatory cytokines, anabolic hormones, as well as reduced oxidative stress and DNA damage. So there are a lot of studies on calorie restriction as well as fasting in rodents for cancer prevention. Not as many in adults, but I think we can learn a lot about the mechanisms at play with calorie restriction and fasting in rodents and what might be going on there. So some of those things are autophagy, which is something that we talk a lot about on the show. Interestingly, and there are some studies where these are rodent trials, but they're fasting trials and the rodents don't lose weight, but it seems to be protective against cancer and it might be due to autophagy, which is kind of cool. There's also something called the differential stress response, which is basically that in a stress state, normal healthy cells grow stronger. Typically, it activates protective mechanisms compared to cancerous cells, which typically do not do well in a stress state. So something like fasting or calorie restriction might protect healthy cells while discouraging cancer cells or even causing apoptosis or the killing of cancer cells. There's also the role of glycolysis. So cancer cells often run on sugar and cannot run on fat or ketones. So fasting can have an effect there possibly. When it comes to actual human studies, so there aren't a lot of studies on fasting for treating cancer or long-term studies on fasting and cancer, but there are a myriad of smaller studies finding mechanisms that might be protective against cancer And then on top of that, there are quite a few studies actually looking at the effects of fasting paired with chemotherapy and finding that it might make chemotherapy more effective 
specifically by reducing DNA damage. And it also a lot of studies have found that can make the negative side effects of chemotherapy not as bad, less toxic, more tolerable. So at the end of the study, they did make recommendations, which is kind of directly answering Nikki's question. This was something I thought was interesting. They actually put the recommendations after the conclusion. So it's very, it's literally like the very last thing in the study. But basically they were saying that when it comes to being overweight and obese, so if you're overweight or obese and you're seeking weight loss as a means of primary cancer prevention, that IF is maybe an option for that. Oh, because they do talk all throughout the paper about the safety or not. And before that, before that, sorry, I'm kind of jumping around. There are some conflicting studies, especially in rodents with cancer prevention. So like some finding it therapeutic or helpful and then others finding that not to be the case. And then interesting studies with rodents as well and refeeding in that some find benefit with cancer prevention and treatment and some actually find that it might make cancer worse. A huge major caveat, and I'm really glad that this article talked about it and it's something that I think is not talked about enough which is the massive difference between rodents and humans and fasting specifically in that they just are not the same thing. Like a 24-hour fast in a rodent. So a 24-hour fast in a rodent, which is often what is studied and is proposed as, quote, intermittent fasting, that's really not intermittent fasting for a rodent. So a 24-hour fast in a rodent is likely equal to a five-day fast feed cycle in humans. That's because a rat will actually die of starvation after 48 to 60 hours, like it will die, compared to a human that can go 57 to 73 days of fasting before dying. So there is a major difference there. So the majority if not maybe all of the studies on rodents and fasting are the equivalent of basically long extended fasting in humans. So that's something to really keep in mind. And then also something else to keep in mind is that, this is interesting, they talk about how like in the rodent studies, the feeding and the food is often much more controlled than it is in human studies. And that oftentimes with fasting in human studies, humans will just eat their normal meals or there's just more factors involved. Like it's not usually like lab chow where it's specifically controlled. So that's something also to keep in mind. And I know I'm skipping all around, but I'm remembering things that I left out. They also talked throughout the article about the fasting mimicking diet, which is the work of Walter Longo. Kind of going back to what I was just saying about the longer fast research in rodents. So a potential benefit of the fasting mimicking diet, which is basically where you have this super low calorie, plant-based, low protein, low carb approach for like usually I think five days in humans is that it kind of can potentially activate these mechanisms of fasting, but for longer. So for five days. So it might be more similar to what you're getting mechanism wise with the rodent studies. And a nice thing about the fasting mimicking diet is there is, it's more controlled and there is quite a bit of research on it with the work of Walter Longo. So going back to, oh, which by the way, we've had Walter Longo on this show. I'm trying to think we've had him on twice. We've had him on, I think once, and then I've had him on my show. Have you had him on your show, Cynthia? I have not. Oh, would you like to interview him? I'm just curious. 
I'm curious, but I think it's, I'm not a huge proponent of really long fasting for a variety of reasons, taking my own personal feelings about it out. Obviously, he's one of the big longevity researchers and someone that talks quite a bit about fasting. So yeah, I think he would definitely be on like my my wish list for the future, for sure. Yeah. I wonder if he has any new books or anything coming out. I'm just thinking how I might like reach out to him and just have him on like randomly, but I'm happy to connect you to him if you like. He was really hard to like lock down. I thought he would be, <laughs> I know he's been around for a while, but I, I I like tried before, like before he had his book, like a while ago when he wasn't quite as popular. And even then I like couldn't, it was hard. I don't even know how I ended up getting him. I think it was, his book was coming out and his publicist reached out. That's usually when you can get him. It's funny. I just booked Glucose Goddess, who I've been persistently after for six months. She has a new book coming out, which is why she probably has been putting me off. And then Dr. Amen. So I've been wanting to have both of them on for a while. So I'm excited about the opportunity to connect with them. And you've had Dr. Amen on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I actually went to his Amen clinics here in Atlanta. Oh, cool. One of my girlfriends works at his DC clinic. Oh, nice. Yeah. They were super nice to like, let me do a I think it was like half of a scan though, <laughs> because you're, you're supposed to go in twice and I went in once and I think they test one thing one time and one thing the other. Yeah, that was, it was a nice experience. It was really cool. Cause he actually like looked at my scan in real time during the interview. <gasps> so I was like, I'm getting my scan reviewed by Dr. Eamon himself, which was very cool. That'll be awesome. I love him. So, okay. So going, oh, Walter Longo. I was like, what, what are we talking about? Yeah. So Walter Longo obviously has the fasting mimicking diet to go back to the conclusion of the study and Nikki's question. So they basically, I felt like it was a very cautious interpretation of the literature, which I understand. Basically they say that if you're overweight or obese and you're seeking weight loss and you're looking for cancer prevention, then IF may be an option. Interestingly, they don't talk about weight loss if you're normal weight, losing weight, and if you should use fasting for cancer prevention. And I think that's mostly just coming from, like I said, a sense of caution, like not wanting to make medical prescriptions. They do say though, that if you are doing IF and not losing weight and or changing your diet and physical activity, that there's not really data indicating the fasting would be protective. But stepping back from that, it's just interesting because they talk all throughout it about all of these mechanisms that are likely activated by fasting that might be protective. So I would make the conclusion that if you're doing fasting, even if you're not losing weight, that it's, this is just my interpretation, I would see how it could be protective. So yeah. And then they do talk about people who actually have cancer and if they should use fasting in that. And they basically say that, yes, there are a few trials for, with people who have, are getting chemotherapy and, and those find typically that's safe, feasible, and can potentially decrease the toxic effects and tumor growth, but that the data is minimal. And if you are doing fasting while having cancer, they basically just say they would only do it if you're in a clinical trial and that a lot more research is needed. So stepping back from all of that, after reading it, I just walked away thinking, that there are clearly a lot of mechanisms that fasting activates that are seemingly protective against cancer. So I would feel comfortable saying that just living an intermittent fasting lifestyle is likely protective against cancer. As far as the how much, I'm trying to remember. So I know Nikki was saying like, you know, a 24-hour fast, like 
she was wondering about like a 24-hour fast once a week or once a month, and she does at least 13 hours. So again, it's it's really hard to know at what point, and this I feel like this also will probably be individual for different people, but at what point in the fast are you activating these different mechanisms? So, you know, more autophagy, insulin going down, IGF-1 going down, metabolic hormones like estrogen and testosterone effects on those. It's hard to know when those are happening at the fast, at what time, but I do think implementing intermittent fasting into your lifestyle is likely protective against cancer. I am intrigued by the fasting mimicking diet. I personally can't. I've tried it and it made me like starving, but I can see how doing that for five days could potentially be pretty therapeutic or like a longer fast, which is also something I haven't done. I think the longest fast I've done has been like 50 hours and I did not enjoy it at all. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember just last note, I was, there was a book I was reading recently and I might've already said it on this podcast, but they were quoting somebody. Oh, I don't want to say a name because I don't know. I don't want to say who it was, but it was somebody very respected. And that person was saying they thought you could reduce your risk of like all cancers significantly if you did, I think he said like a, you know, a four to five day fast once a year or something. Yeah. So that was a lot. Cynthia, I know you have thoughts as well. What are your thoughts? I do. And that was a very extensive response. I have a team member who's a breast cancer thriver and is very open about this. So I'm not disclosing anything that that she hasn't shared publicly. And, you know, I stumbled upon some research, gosh, probably a few years ago, there's a JAMA oncology article from 2016 talking about objectively looking at early women with early stage breast cancer. And there were over 2,400 women with breast cancer, but without diabetes, ages 27 to 70, they were put into a prospective women's healthy eating and living study that ran from 1995 to 2007. And it was really just focused on nightly fasting duration. And so what really came out of this is that prolonging the length of the nightly fasting interval Maybe a simple non-pharmacologic strategy for reducing the risk of breast cancer reoccurrence, as well as improvements in glucoregulation, specific to A1C is what they were looking at here, and CRP, so uh, C-reactive protein. And so it's interesting, they speak in here extensively about this model and what it came down to in terms of hours of sleep. And it ended up being, you know, kind of aligned with what Sachin Panda had talked about, you know, less than 13 hours a night of sleep, which is not a lot was associated with a 36% higher hazard for breast cancer reoccurrence. So, you know, from my perspective, and I talk very openly about this now, that the minimum standard for every single listening grown adult should be 12 to 13 hours of fasting. And that's not even fasting. It's like digestive rest. It's pretty benign. But understanding that this was a large study that was looking at all-cause mortality, and it's interesting that they're not talking about these prolonged periods of fasting. And and I do see the utility in doing that. I think my concern always falls into the bucket of if you're lean already, are you losing muscle? And then you really have to think about the net impact on loss of muscle and whether or not that's the upregulation of autophagy is really of benefit. But we'll link this study up. And this is, again, Less than 13 hours was associated with a statistically significant 36% increased risk of breast. So it's interesting that it was just 13 hours of fasting. It wasn't this prolonged fast. 
I think this is highly bio-individual. I think there's ongoing research, but this was just one of many, many resources that I kind of stumbled upon and why, you know, the, the individuals on my team, as an example, who are either perimenopausal, menopausal females that are cancer survivors, just helping them understand that interrelationship of not only insulin sensitivity, but also the role of therapeutic fasting or even periods of digestive rest have a lot of net benefits. Just to comment quickly on that women's study, the review talked about that study as well. And what was interesting, what it said about it, it talked about that study and then it compared it to another study that also looked at a large cohort of women. I'd have to read the section again, but basically they said by comparing the results of the two studies and weight loss or not and the effects, the two studies, so the one that Cynthia spoke about and then another one, because of the weight loss and the adjustments for that and what happened and what didn't happen, it led to the hypothesis that a negative energy balance is a necessary factor for improving breast cancer outcomes. Because I know one of the studies that they looked at, they weren't necessarily making it like calorie restricted, but I think it ended up being that. Yeah. So by comparing the two, basically that the negative energy balance might be an important key there. And one of the things about fasting nicely is that it can often create unintentional calorie restriction without people even meaning to. So that was something to point out. I'm also glad that you pointed out, I do find that really interesting about like the 13 hours, like especially because like Nikki mentioned Dr. Panda talking about 13 hours and then that is often what is prescribed. And you said this basically, but I do wonder how many of the benefits do actually, it surprises me basically that we are seeing the effects with that short of a fast. I guess what I find encouraging is for the people who are out there who are not fasting on a regular basis, it's almost like a gateway, meaning it's low enough in terms of hours spent not eating that I think most people could do that and do it fairly easily. You know, I presented at Low Carb Denver now almost a week and a half ago. And one of the things, I mean, usually I'm talking about fasting, but in the case of this event, I was talking about insulin sensitive obesity. And I was saying like in terms of interventions that you can do with patients, 12 hours of digestive rest can still confers benefits. Unfortunately, I think it's probably our competitive nature here in the United States, but people kind of think more is better. More always has to be better. And I just remind people, I'm like, let's just keep it simple. Like we want things to be sustainable. And I, I think for a lot of people, it's just in their nature. Like they want to go to extremes. Like, oh, I have to do a 24-hour fast to get benefits. Well, there's, there's different types of fasting. But I think for the general population, if you just do 12 or 13 hours fasted, we know that there are a lot of health benefits conferred with that. So I think just meeting people where they are, like if you're going from a standard American diet and being a couch potato to fasting, that's going to be scary, like really scary to change from eating every hour or two to going and eating twice a day. That's a big adjustment. It surprises me, but it's super amazing <laughs> that it makes it you know, more approachable for people. Yeah. I'm just thinking about how like growing up, I used to do intermittent fasting. I've talked about this on the show before, but one day a week on Wednesdays because we would go to the buffet at the country club. And so I would not eat all day so that I could just like pig out. And two things. One, I thought I was doing something really terrible by not eating, even though like natural, I mean, again, granted I was in high school, it was still so hard. <laughs> and now to think that I do, you know, a one meal a day type approach every single day is just 
kind of funny to think about. So there is something about having that, that uh, approachable, you know, like something that people feel like they can actually do and getting used to it. So it's great to know that there are the benefits there potentially. Absolutely. Hi friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 10% off my new magnesium supplement. Magnesium is such a crucial mineral in the body. It's involved in over 600 enzymatic processes. Basically everything that you do requires magnesium, including creating energy from your food, turning it into ATP in the mitochondria, boosting your antioxidant system. Magnesium has been shown to help with the creation of glutathione, regulating your blood sugar levels, affecting nerve health, muscle recovery, muscle contractions, supporting cardiovascular health and blood pressure, aiding sleep and relaxation, and so much more. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of Americans do not get the daily recommended levels of magnesium. And on top of that, magnesium deficiencies can often be silent because only 1% of magnesium is actually in our bloodstream. So that might not be reflective of a true magnesium deficiency. Our modern soils are depleted of magnesium. We're not getting it in our diet. That's why it can be so crucial to supplement with magnesium daily. I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what magnesium eight is. It contains eight forms of magnesium in their most absorbable forms so you can truly boost your magnesium levels. It comes with the cofactor methylated B6 to help with absorption as well as chelated manganese because magnesium can actually displace manganese in the body. My Avalon X supplements are free of all problematic fillers, including rice, which is very, very common in a lot of supplements, including some popular magnesium supplements on the market. It's tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens as well as free of heavy metals and mold. And it comes in a glass bottle to help prevent leaching of toxins into our bodies and the environment. Friends, I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what this magnesium is. You can get magnesium eight at avalonx.us and use the coupon code MelanieAvalon to get 10% off your order. That code will also work on all my supplements, including my first supplement that I made, Serapeptase. You guys, love serapeptase, a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm that breaks down problematic proteins in your body and can help allergies, inflammation, wound healing, clear up your skin, clear brain fog, even reduce cholesterol and amyloid plaque. All of this is at avalonx.us. That coupon code Melanie Avalon will also get you 10% off site-wide from my amazing partner, MD Logic Health. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. You can also get on my email list for all of the updates. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Now we have a question from Holly. The subject is IF question and comment. And Holly says, hello there. I saw this book as a recommendation in my fasting group and I've been listening to it at work. And I realize, I don't know which book she's talking about, but I don't know if it's yours or Jen's, probably not mine. She says, I've learned a lot for someone who has studied food, but in different ways, I suppose. I had a couple of questions and comments about a couple of things that stuck out to me. Have you ever read the book, French Kids Eat Everything? I learned some interesting information about different cultural approaches to eating, and it was fascinating to me because I'm a cultural geographer and an artisan cheesemaker. That's cool. She says, anyways, my question is pertaining to children and being ingrained to eating breakfast. At what age do we let them casually feel ready to eat for the day? Or as teenagers, the kids are little, we eat pretty clean as everything is made at home. But what happens when they have to start school and we want to make sure they are nourished until their untimely short lunch period? On another note, 
I wanted to comment about working out and fasting. I began practicing yoga with my mom when I was about 15 years old. We were watching VHS tapes, and before every practice began, there was a warning that you should be in a minimum of a four-hour fasted state before practicing. So I guess what I'm saying is yoga taught me to always work out in a fasted state. That's all. I just wanted to share that with you. Best, Holly. I like hearing that about the yoga. Well, Holly, I have actually not read that book, French Kids Eat Everything, but I am familiar with the premise. I have teenagers and what we have to do is instill good habits in our children. By the time they were late elementary school age, middle school age, they were making their own lunches. They could you know, make their own breakfast. They could put together an impromptu meal during the day if they were home on a weekend. I think that you have to instill good habits. And then I certainly didn't find that my kids were tempted by the junk that was served in the school cafeteria. Although once a week we would let them get ice cream because everyone got ice cream on a specific day of the week. And I just kind of let that go. But I think by the time they're teenagers, they kind of auto-regulate. And especially with the pandemic, my teenagers, they had to. They had to be able to make their own you know, lunch because with four of us being home, we were all breaking at different times. And being online for an entire year of school was a gigantic joke. And so my kids would sometimes you know, check out when they were in the middle of class. They would come downstairs and make food. So my kids know how to make healthy meals. And you have to pick your battles. Like I pretty much determine like, what are my non-negotiables? And then we work around that. Like I'm adamant about no high fructose corn syrup and no seed oils. And both my kids actually eat really healthy. They eat a lot of protein. They're both student athletes. They eat a lot of healthy carbohydrates. I have one kid who's been tracking his macros because he's trying to build muscle. And it's actually been impressive to kind of watch him be very diligent about meal timing and how much carbohydrate he's eating and how much protein he's eating. So from that perspective, I wouldn't worry too much. You, all those good habits that you're instilling in your children now, I I found that it was less about school being a minefield and more about birthday parties and things like that, where my kids would come home and just, they'd be sick from eating like conventional pizza and whatever the other fun foods they were eating at these parties. Now, in terms of Yoga and what I know about yoga as a practice, it is not at all surprising that you're going to do best, especially if you're doing inversions, depending on what type of yoga you're doing. Not at all surprised that they would encourage you to be in a fasted state because, or at least, you know, in between several hours in between meals so that your body's not focused on digestion and you can actually move with some ease. So definitely not surprised that you, that, that yoga has reinforced that behavior. What do you think, Melanie? I knew you would have a great answer for that, having kids. No, I agree with with everything you said. And I was thinking back to, I think I told you I interviewed Marion Nessel. Did I tell you that? Mm-mm. Oh, it was, talk about an inspiring interview. So excited about it. John Levy connected us and she's she does a lot with like food policy or she does a lot writing about food policy and the role of government and the food industry in our processed food industry and, you know, the dietetics associations and the food pyramids and all the things. She's like a legend. Time Magazine had her on the list of like most, something about like people involved making the biggest advances in like health and medicine, which is crazy. I think she's the oldest guest I've interviewed. Well, how old is Gabor Mate? I think he's in his seventies, but he sounds like his voice. He sounds much younger. Yeah, he does sound younger. And she sounded younger. She's 86. 
Oh, he's definitely younger than that. Yeah, she was born in 1936. Yeah. And it was so cool hearing about her growing up like in college and like being a mom and a working woman and trying to navigate the system and everything she dealt with as a woman back then. It's crazy. But in any case, so she has a whole section in her book and she has she has 15 books, so she has a lot of information, but a lot about the role of cafeteria food and the role of industry in marketing to kids and I don't want to say coercing schools. I think it's quite an issue today. And just stepping back, I I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but it's so interesting because it's so blatantly obvious. And Gabor Mate talks about this. Like when things are just normalized as normal, we don't notice like how off they are or how like wrong they are. So something like these big mega companies that put so much money into like health research. And it's not because they care about your health. It's because they want to divert attention away from the problem. So like Coca-Cola or Nestle have these huge like focuses on like supporting health, but it's usually like focusing on like the benefits of exercise. Like it's all to like not make you think about the problems of eating the chocolate and drinking the Coca-Cola. I could go on a tangent about this. To me, that just seems like so blatantly obvious, but like nobody's really like thinking about it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes. And when my kids were younger, I was one of the co-directors for Real Food for Kids. So wait, what is that? It's an organization that is trying to improve the quality of food nutrition that's offered to kids in schools. And so we, at that time, lived in Northern Virginia and had a lot of access to local farms. And so we had locally sourced grass-fed meat and organic vegetables that the kids were able to incorporate into their lunches. And so, yeah, there's there's a lot that's wrong about the school food that is served to our children, definitely. No, that's super cool. I, I feel like that was all over the place, but I feel like we answered her question pretty well. Absolutely. Do you want to do a, one last quick fun question? Sure. So here's just a fun non-fasting related question to end on from Danielle. And this is from our AMAs back in the day. She wants to know, do you have a particular teacher, speaking of schools, that influenced or inspired you? Hmm. Well, I had a high school AP English teacher who I have jokingly slash not jokingly admitted to was the only teacher that really prepared me for college, the rigor, Dr. Barbara Godbald. She was very serious. She had, she was probably 6'2". She was very imposing. And she made us work our butts off for her class. And just the pace of the class is really what I believe set me up for what college pace was going to be like. She was super strict. Like this is back when she wouldn't allow us to wear shorts in our class unless we, they came to our knees. And back in the eighties, no one was wearing shorts that long. So we would pull our shorts down past our butt and like wear these oversized t-shirts so that we could (laughs) stay in class and not get kicked out. She was intense, but I think many years later, I actually wrote her a letter and and thanked her. But at the time, she was formidable, like six foot two, tall, imposing. She was really, really smart and really taught me a lot. But at the time, I remember thinking she was an impediment to my social life. How about you? So two immediately come to mind. One was also, I skipped my last year of high school, but if I had stayed, he was the AP English teacher. But before that, he was... So when I was like a sophomore, 
actually, wait, you know what? That's not true. I think he was the sophomore and junior honors English teacher. And then there was a different AP English teacher, Coach Carruth, Patrick Carruth. He like changed my life. He was so amazing. And he was one of the ones where like we were terrified, like the first few weeks of him, like terrified because he would like, he was so intimidating and so intelligent. And he would just ask us these questions. It was very like, Greek, like you know, like the like Socrates, like and Plato, like sitting around asking questions. So he would like ask us these metaphysical questions, and we would just like stare at him <laughs> and be scared. But by the end, you know, halfway through the year, and then throughout the next year, he became like the most amazing thing. And then he actually left and went to become headmaster of another school, like move states. And we had a going away party for him that we like did Great Gatsby themed at my house. So yeah, he had a huge impact on my life. And then in college at USC, actually the top paid professor at USC is Drew Casper. He's in the film school and he is a legend. And he also is terrifying. Like he's terrifying (laughs) and he's crazy and he like screams and yells and is very passionate and energetic. But I... (laughs) And he teaches a lot of the film courses at the film school. You can invite him to lunch if you want and like have lunch with him and do like kind of like office hours, but at lunch. And so I did that like as a freshman because I was like, I'm going to do this. And he was, he was just so funny and so wonderful. And I need to like reach out to him now. And I would always bring like, (laughs) in college, I was like kind of crazy. I was very like girly and I would like wear all pink and I would like bring my stuffed animal of Thumper to like class. And he would always like get Thumper from me and like teach with Thumper on his podium. He would have Christmas parties at his house every year and he would invite me to his Christmas parties. <laughs> like the most amazing thing. So I'm I'm gonna reach out to him. I should see if like he would want to do an an interview on my show, which would not be biohacking related at all, but I'm gonna do that like right after this. Awesome. It's really nice how people can change your life. That's actually because we had an AMA question also about like something that you wish you had done or like done differently or learned in life. And one of the things I do wish I had done more was like in college, I wish I had gone to more office hours, like with the different professors just in general or like taken other classes, but I guess there wasn't really time, (laughs) but I feel like in college, there's just like so much opportunity for like so much free stuff if you take advantage of it. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. I was part of a very small school within a university. And so the dean knew us all by name. So you couldn't hide. There was no hiding. And the professors were pretty intense. So, you know, I, I, and more often than not, the school of nursing had the same professors as the school of medicine. So, you know, it was just intense. I remember thinking we just, I, I would just like go, go home and want to just unplug my brain, <laughs> just, you know, between clinicals and, and everything else. But I agree with you. I think most of us probably lack the maturity in our you know late teens, early 20s to take full advantage of all the opportunities to learn. Yeah. So like I said, if I could go back, I would do more, but it's like, I don't know that I really could have. So awesome. Well, this has been absolutely amazing. So if listeners would like to submit their own questions for the show, they can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com or they can go to ifpodcast.com and they can submit questions there. And these show notes will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 211. And then you can also follow us on Instagram. We are I have podcast. I am Melanie Avalon. Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. 
And I think that is all the things. So anything from you, Cynthia, before we go? No, just uh, keep the great questions coming. Indeed. And I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.